The thing about stress is that it puts us in fight, flight and freeze mode, which means that we're not actually in those moments gaining access to our prefrontal cortex. So the production of cortisol, which is the stress chemical, it sends all of our oxygen to our limbs, right? Because in old times, that would be useful because we'd run away from scary stuff, right? Whereas now, we can be the cause. Time is a huge cause of stress and pressure. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier, and more sustainable hospitality profession. The Burnt Chef Project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston, a leading provider of innovative, high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. I'm excited this week to introduce to you our guest, Ryan Hartley. Ryan Hartley was introduced to us by his brother who works in the hospitality industry. And we had a conversation and thought that a podcast would be fantastic to be able to open up the dialogue and the things that we were talking about. Ryan runs a business called Always Better Than Yesterday, and it exists to help develop heart-centered leaders, teams, organizations, and communities. He is an incredibly intelligent human being and very wise. This conversation is a good reflection of that. And I think that if you have an hour and you are tuned in and ready, give this your full attention because Ryan gives you a lot of takeaways from this. And and the conversation was healthy. It was insightful and at some moments very profound. So I hope that you enjoy this week's episode. Do check Ryan out. Check also out his podcast as well. He has some fantastic guests on there. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. Ryan, thank you for joining me and looking forward to reciprocating on, on yours as well. So for those who are listening and who haven't read the show notes yet, because this will all be in there, Ryan, can you just explain to our listeners who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, thank you, mate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Ryan Hartley. I'm from the southwest of England. I've been with my wife since I was 15. We've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. And I did 12 years in the UK police service, a variety of civilian roles. And somewhere along the way, I trained to be a coach. Fell in love with this idea of helping people be better than they were yesterday through the power of coaching. And in 2020, six weeks before Boris locked us down, I went full-time with my company, Always Better Than Yesterday. So I, I coach, I consult, I host a community and a podcast. It's all with the heart of trying to help create develop, inspire, and encourage heart-centered leaders. I love it. But I'm not going to let you get away with just that. (laughs) So you had a career in the police service. What was it that triggered you into this path? Because, you know, we've both spoken briefly before, and we know that there's... You don't just wake up one day and go, do you know what? Today, I'm going to be a coach. What was it? What changed? What happened? Well, for me, I was that kid that watched far too many crime documentaries, you know, Wire in the Blood, Dr. Tony Hill type. So I've always been fascinated with why people do what they do. 
So that led me to do psychology, go off to university, and I wanted to know why naughty people did naughty things. So that's why I went into the police service. But my first job was taking 999 calls, dispatching officers on the radio in the control room. And and I very quickly realized that criminal profilers, they're not real things unless you spend your entire life in academia, which my wife wasn't patient enough to allow me to do. So (laughs) she's like, you need to move out, get yourself a job. So off we did that. And along the way, I was accepted to be a police officer and my intake was the first one cancelled under the spending review 2008. So I was looking to have a 30-year career as a police officer and then overnight, because of the spending cutbacks in 2008, that wasn't going to be possible. So I moved on and did other things that I was good at, became an analyst. And because I had had some operational experience, I became quite a good analyst because I had some lived experience and perspective with which to be able to communicate with you know traditional analysts are just good with numbers not necessarily with people and I and I was fortunate enough to be quite good with both and that just opened up opportunities to learn leadership and I became a dad at the first at the same time I think that was really crucial my son was born 10 years ago and I became a leader manager for the first time and and I was doing like the 3 a.m night feed and like you know you've got a busy day at work tomorrow. You, you you know that you don't want to be doing the night feed. You're tired. And yet you're there out of love. You're there out of service to this little thing. And, and you want to nurture them and, and help them grow and be happy. And I kind of felt the same emotion with my team. I wanted them to come and feel like they were enjoying the work that they were doing, that they could bring the best of themselves. And more importantly, go home for those who needed them. You know, I, I had single parent people in my team and four children and I just knew that whatever I could do in that work environment would send them home better because the stress of school pickups and tea times and so I started to see leadership differently the world I was in policing was about rank and hierarchy and how long you'd done the job for and and here I was talking about a style of leadership that was about service and sacrifice and caring the ironic thing is that that's what the public service should be about right service and sacrifice is what they do so well on the day-to-day but somehow that didn't work its way up the ranks in terms of its leadership but to get to the point around where did coaching come in well as I fell in love with leadership the opportunity to be trained as a coach within the police came available and I'd already been fortunate enough to say that I love what I do in a variety of roles whether it be the control room whether it be the kind of organizational development role that I'd had but finding this thing called coaching where I could help people specifically people, not necessarily processes or policies or all that nerdy stuff, where I could help people be better and improve and grow. I fell in love with it. And I guess I had a feeling that it was my style of leadership anyway. I kind of felt like I was coaching that way. So to to have a, a structure around that was was helpful. And my wife was a network marketer. She had a team of about 300 women in her team. And so I was just come home from work in the evening and coach. And I coached a lot for free for two years, probably a year too long because, you know, that kind of does something with your money mindset for doing it for too long. Mm-hmm. That did two things to me. One is it is it helped me learn and grow and develop as a coach. And it gave me a, a little community of people who I had helped. I then put them all into this one place on Facebook called We Are Always Better Than Yesterday. So I started to build a list mini community which enabled me then to step out and and run my coaching business full-time. That's amazing. And for anyone who doesn't know, what was the sort of the role of the analyst? What is an analyst, first and foremost? Yeah, 
I mean, you have a variety of different types of analysts and, you know, the world that I was in was all around performance, organizational performance. So it's looking okay. at all of the things that you're doing in the organization. Are you doing it well enough? And where can we find opportunities to learn, grow and improve? And and unfortunately, in policing, there are, there are a lot of those opportunities at the moment because it, it's a struggling service, much like most of the, the public sector, which is kind of heartbreaking for me, having been part of it for so long. Despite what the media might try and tell you about police, it is filled with some incredible, incredible people, much like the world that you're in. It's the people that really do keep it going. There's a lot of similarities in what you're saying, especially the you know, public service versus the service profession, you know, in terms of hospitality is kind of like the biggest ironicism, isn't it? That actually what we do on a daily basis in both professions is service other people. We provide our best to other people on a regular basis. But what we actually really need to do is provide our best to our own people and most importantly to ourselves, because that's the area that we seem to be really, really struggling with is, is that those boundaries and that opportunity to be able to go, hold on a sec, if I'm not a hundred percent rather than just keep digging into that empty tank and scraping the bottom for other people why don't i actually spend a bit of time on myself and it feels selfish right it doesn't feel natural yeah i have this theory or this this phrase that says you, you know what the whole you can't give what you've not got well i prefer to look at it in terms of imagine how much i can give when i've got a lot and uh, we were talking a little bit off air about our daughters and my daughter she is a foodie and a couple of months ago we ordered Domino's, and you know, she was hungry and you don't want to be around my daughter, Brooke, when she's hungry. She's like, so she was like hunkered over this pizza, like protective. I said, oh, Brooke, can I have a piece? And she's swatting my hand away. And it's not until she eats, you know, the majority of her pizza that she's like, oh, here you go, dad. Do you want a piece? And I think that's a great metaphor for kind of the spirit of leadership is that the same thing happened. I got that one piece, but in her giving to herself first, her spirit of giving to me was more genuine was more loving, was more from a position of, I'd love to give this to you rather than, oh, fine, if I have to. And I think that's true of us as leaders is that it's not selfish to pour into ourselves. I call it self-fullness, not selfishness, but self-fullness. And that when I pour into myself, I can give lovingly and serve others from the overflow. And that comes from a, a completely different place. I think I mean, I was very fortunate enough to interview a guy called Dr. Gary Chapman. He's the author of The Five Love Languages. And there's something on the final page of his book that kind of haunted me. And it says, for all the love we do not receive as children, we seek that in the world as adults. And there are so many people in leadership positions using their position to seek the love with which they have not experienced. And I call that leading for love. And I think if we can get that point of self-fullness, we'll learn how to lead from love. That's so profound. Um resonates massively it was a similar sort of conversation i was having with a friend of mine shane recently for the podcast and he runs a business called jasper Wellbeing, and he's a breathwork coach and meditation coach and, a, and a, a chap that you should very much meet because i think that there's a whole piece around resilience but one of the things that we speak a lot about when we meet up is this finding your inner child and stripping away all of these shitty layers that we've got around us that are built up as a protection mechanism and there's things that we believe society should allow us to have and until we actually get down deep deep down into that core thing of why my behavior isn't me 
my behavior is as a result of something. So what is leading to that action? What is causing that? And what you've just said really, yeah, really resonates with that. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of that gets brought out under stress, you know, and my brother, shout out to Zach. I think you guys met down at the Methuen recently. I know enough about the stress that he and his colleagues and your listeners will operate under. The thing about stress is that it puts us in fight flight and freeze mode, which means that we're not actually in those moments gaining access to our prefrontal cortex. So the production of cortisol, which is the stress chemical, it sends all of our oxygen to our limbs, right? Because in old times, that would be useful because we'd run away from scary stuff, right? Whereas now we can be the cause. Time is a huge cause of stress and pressure. And that reduces our access because the the blood flow restricts to the bit that is effectively our human part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, which enables us to think logically, make cool, calm, you know, good decisions. So when we're under states of stress, we're never gaining access to the full qualities of our humanness. We're actually operating out of our chimp. And it is in that act of getting to know ourselves, what we like, what we don't like, what we care about, what we stand for. How does my behavior manifest when I'm under stress? What are my triggers? It is that self-awareness that gives me that opportunity to go from my chimp response to my chosen response. And that's that's ultimately self-leadership. The gap between running around like a headless chicken, acting like a chimp, acting out of my stress, and the gap between them being able to replace that with something that delivers better kind of outcomes and possibilities for the people I'm working with and for. But that's leadership. That's self-leadership. And we can only get there by taking responsibility for ourselves. And this this sounds really cliche, really crass, but when you take responsibility for stuff, you improve your ability to respond. It's that almost responsibility. I think responsibility is a better word than control, right? Because we were talking again the other day about control and how, you know, if you walk out of your door, you get splashed by the first car that comes past. You can push that out there and go, that fucking car, that driver didn't see the puddle. (laughs) How dare they? They've splashed me. This is going to ruin my day. Or you can take responsibility for it and go, perhaps I shouldn't have stood so close to that puddle. Perhaps I should have left work five minutes earlier or left my house five minutes earlier. And perhaps this is a little bit like, oh, I'm fooling myself into thinking that I have have a control or responsibility over these things. But actually, if we start looking inwards rather than reflecting outwards, it then puts us in a slightly different head. Sp- I mean, just that thought alone, that's your fault versus, okay, perhaps I could have a con- you know, some degree of say in what happens there. Yeah, well, there was a philosophical point that was made. I don't know who made it, but it's basically what you do to others, you do to yourself. And I didn't quite understand that to its fullest until I realized that that stress that you might put out towards the car driving past, if that's going to flood your system with those stress chemicals, the other thing that happens whilst we are under states of stress is it shuts off your immune system because there's no need for an immune system whilst you're being chased by a tiger, right? That's not your priority. So actually, if we are under prolonged states of stress, we're actually weakening our immune systems too. Not only our ability to be conscious and good leaders, but actually we are becoming less healthy, less well. And I think the reason that's really important is because life is full of micro stresses. 
Life is full of the Wi-Fi not working. Life is full of just inconveniences like traffic and the little things that mean that we are subtly stressed for long periods of time. And that's why I do stupid things like ice baths and cold showers, because what it is, is like a switch. It's like, okay, let's turn that stress right up so that I can turn it off again. Uh, because sometimes we just don't realize it. And I, and I guess people listening will recognize that with t- tight jaws, tight shoulders. Maybe they get run down, sore throats if they have, eventually if they have a rest day after working however many days straight, double shifts. And, you know, I, I know it's happening. So we carry that stress, just we're not always aware of it because it's so acute, so microdosed. Yeah. And also, let's not forget that it's epigenetic as well, which means that if we don't start tackling it we pass on perhaps poor resilience to our children like this this is something that gets passed down through biology but it's reversible right it's reversible it's similarly to epigenetic changes within the workplace your body and your brain mold over a period of time to fit the environment that you're in that is reversible and you can actually start to improve that and also provide an environment where that's improving for your friends, family members, or most importantly, you know, in this situation, our our peers and colleagues, right? Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books around the effect of the environment on a human being is is Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections. In his book, he kind of goes through the causes of depression and anxiety beyond the mainstream narrative that it's a chemical imbalance in the brain. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's the simplest way of describing it is the goldfish bowl analogy. You know, it's very easy for us to look at a goldfish that's unwell and see that the bowl is murky and unhealthy. So our instinct is not to say, oh, come on, goldfish, pull yourself together. It's to change its environment. But yet when we're human beings, because the world has got such an individualistic nature, we think if everyone else is okay, then maybe I'm the problem. But the reality is, Johan says that we shouldn't be questioning what's going on inside our head. We should be questioning what our head is inside. And that looks like a variety of things, like having a hope and a hopeful future having a sense of security, having a sense of good supportive values that aren't, you know, driven by lack and materialism and commercialism, having a safe and secure environment where we work and we work with good people and good leadership and good people that take care of, you know, there's a, there's a variety of things that I think if some people took a step back and slowed down enough, they could go, well, my environment's not really helping me right now. My environment's not conducive to my health. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. True. Very true. And I think this is where the education bit comes in. You know, it's hard trying to challenge hundreds of years of stigma and, and say to people, firstly, mental illness is something that physically changes your body, your brain shrinks, your chemicals change. You know, this is all things that you can see now under an x-ray. You can see, and I can't remember the TED talk, there's a doctor who scanned hundreds of brains and he was able to identify mental illness just by looking at the shape and the neuropathways of the brain. So firstly, we're challenging that perspective, but it's also perhaps going a step beyond that and going, you are not a depressed person. You are not a anxious person. There are things that have happened that are perhaps perpetuating that, but subscribing yourself to that life means that you are subscribing yourself never to recover. And what is it within your environment? It's like, so we provide uh, unlimited therapy through an NHS approved app. And I'm very clear when I go into businesses, I say, to, they say, what's the ROI? And I say, well, the ROI could be as much as 19 to 1. 19 to 1. If people use this app, 
and they recover from mental illness, it can be 19 to 1. And they go, amazing. Like, this is such a good return on investment. But I said, and here we go. And this is where, as a, as a previous salesman, this really throws people. I say, it's all very well and good treating mental illness. But if something within the work environment is causing it in the first place, this is all fake. You have to be prepared, not just to recover people from mental illness, but actually have those conversations as a leader, find out potentially, and this isn't from therapy, this isn't from counseling, you're not here to diagnose, but it's to be able to have an open conversation and try and establish perhaps if there is something within the environment, the leadership, the culture, the start times of the job, is there something there that is exacerbating or causing this mental illness to continue? And there are going to be things that are out of control, you know, work life, you know, there's going to be things like finances and just biology that play a part in this and natural resilience. But we cannot keep recovering people if the environment they're in is making them sick, right? 100%. It's a sticking plaster, isn't it? And and I think, you know, I have a high degree of trust in the sophistication of the human body, right? It's evolved over billions of years, right, from single cell organisms. But there are things that have changed in the last 50 years at such a significant speed that our bodies, our minds, our spirits haven't caught up with that. So it's interesting you talk about stigma. I prefer the no shit Sherlock kind of approach, which says, if I take a step back and I really look at my life and how I'm fueling my body, you know, the vast majority of human adults are sleep deprived, not sleeping enough, you know, because we've got blue lights, we can stay up later. That's just one reason why mentally we might struggle. So I prefer to look around at our life and go, well, there's no surprise. I'm thinking or feeling the way I do. And I think that takes away some of the shame, some of the guilt, and just that no shit Sherlock is is definitely a great, at least I know where it's coming from, and that empowers me more to do something about it. And I won't get too conspiratorial about where power comes from and where does the power really go, because ultimately you have to find where does the money go. I don't think the powers that be necessarily want us healthy and knowledgeable around how to help ourselves, because that makes us less dependent on the state, but I won't go down that path too far because I might not come back out. Oh, I think our listeners are with you. Like, like we're, <laughs> you know, we're creative yeah. and free-thinking individuals. And if you want to go there, go there. Like, I'm fully on board. <laughs> yeah, well, and the last kind of slightly controversial thought I have on the men's space particularly is that men and women are different in the way that they think, the way that they act, the way that they deal with emotions. And unfortunately, men have been conditioned out of their emotions for, for generations. You know, that in some way that emotion is weakness and I think that has made it hard because the world wants men to talk the world wants men to talk about their emotions but what they don't understand is that men have been conditioned to see vulnerability as the enemy now if I'm seeing vulnerability as the enemy I'm going to repel that within me but also if somebody else shows it I'm going to repel that you're going to repel me if you're showing it and, I, and that's where bullying comes from that's where attacking it comes from. I'm not attacking you, the human being. I'm attacking the fact that you're showing a level of vulnerability I was told I could never show. And I think, what does that then look like for men in therapy? It looks and sounds very different. You know, I think a lot of the therapeutical advice have been informed by maybe ways that women would have talked about certain things. And I think the expression that that might take for men, having, for me personally, having led 
group coaching sessions with women and men, the conversations are very different. Men are a bit more logical, more practical. They want to solve problems. They want more solutions. Whereas women just want to be seen and heard and, and have their feelings and experiences validated. It's not to say one's right or the other. It's just to say we have to make spaces that are different. So encouraging men to talk about their feelings is not always the best solution. Sometimes it's being with a brother, sitting down, letting him know that you're there regardless, giving him the opportunity to talk about his problems, offering him some solutions if he needs it, and sometimes just doing something together. Because I interviewed a guy called Dr. John Gray, who's the author of Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And he says that men are really good at their core problem solving. But the problem they have is that they are more emotionally aware than any previous generation. And those two things do not go together. Because if a man starts to see his emotions as a problem to solve, he's not going to be able to solve that problem. Because emotions aren't problems to fix. They are feedback mechanisms. So what a man sometimes needs to do is learn how to disconnect from that feeling. Not disconnect from feeling the feeling, but disconnect from the desire to fix that feeling. And realise that it will eventually go. Unless there's something root cause that's causing that problem that could be addressed and dealt with. But feelings, like the clouds, they come and they go. Dropping all like the paradigm shifts today, I love it. Like, Thanks, man. If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry. By purchasing some of our branded merchandise, we have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. It's so true. There's, you know, it's only something over the last probably four or five years I've personally become more aware of. It's that your emotions are that feedback, right? And our instant thing is, fuck, I don't like this. What can I do to get it to stop? Is it, do I need to smash down some alcohol? Is it that, you know, I need to go and release some aggression? What is it? Because I don't like feeling this way as opposed to going, yeah, this is uncomfortable and this is tough, but it's not going to be my reality for the rest of my life. It's a whole series of different things going off all at the same time at this moment in time, but it's not it's not sustainable and it will die down. And I think looping this back to perhaps that stress element, which is, you know, that is, um, you're emotionally heightened, you know, you're exaggerated in terms of your emotions, you finish a long day at shift, you can't sleep, you don't know when it's going to end, because quite frankly, no one's ever sat down with a watch and go, right, my cortisol levels are going to drop in 25 minutes, what can I do to A, reduce that time, or B, to ride out that time effectively? So we're in this moment and this moment is reality and it is uncomfortable and it's horrible. And then we look for things to try and get around it, don't we? It's so, so profound. Yeah, so much love and acceptance for ourselves is only for 50% of us, really, if we were truly honest. It's for the good stuff. It's for the things that we're good at. It's the things that people like about ourselves. It's the workplace that likes what we're good at. So we go everywhere we go, only really having 50% of ourselves truly accepted appreciated and loved right and that leads people into a feeling a conditional sense of love and the reality is true love 
feels like accepting all of it, the flaws, the weaknesses, the insecurities. And yet, do we have those relationships and those workplaces that make us feel like we can show it all and then be accepted anyway? You know, is my position in this team, in this organization, or even this relationship at threat if you know the real me? So if we want to create spaces and places of belonging, it's not trying to be really clear on what it is that you want and that you like and that you you need. That's part of it. The other side is what are you willing to tolerate in, in order to get those benefits? If you want a high-performing you know, team in the kitchen who are incredible at what they do, those people will always have a shadow because they're human. Dr. John Martini said to me, he said that there's no such thing as a, as a positive-only magnet. Like you cut a magnet in half, it still goes positive, negative. You That's life. You're always going to get something that you love and something that you probably less desire. That's two sides of the same coin. And that's the same with people and relationships. So we have to start to get to this point where not only do I feel courageous enough to show you my shadow, but I'm in an environment that accepts that and makes me feel like I belong and that my position within this relationship isn't under threat anyway. And maybe that's why some people don't talk. Maybe there's, there's a, a degree or a belief that if I do show you this side of me, then maybe it threatens the, my space within this team or this within this relationship. And lastly, just when it comes to being in a relationship with a woman, is that to enable us to be in that, that polarity, that in, in order for me to be in my masculine and her to be in her feminine in a healthy way, there are certain requirements. The masculine needs to feel trusted and he needs to feel kind of like he's the king, like he's he's accepted and he's respected. She needs to feel safe and secure. And and if I ain't got my shit together, does she really feel safe and secure in my presence? So you can see how those two things don't necessarily go together if there's not this space. Like, she's going to worry about me if I ain't got my shit together. So I don't want to worry her. So I don't show her my full vulnerability because in some way I fear losing that respect. And sometimes even putting that awareness in the middle and go, we've got grace and space for each other. We'll work this through together. And then we get back to there being that what we need to be for ourselves and others. That's an interesting one. And one perhaps we should explore maybe on another another time. Because my experience with that is that, yes, you've got the physiological differences. Yes, you've got the biological differences. But depending on the relationship, the response to that level of vulnerability can be so incredibly different based on the environment that your partner was brought up in. So there have been occasions where you show that vulnerability and then they respond as if to say, like you were saying earlier, like that's a sign of weakness and we're going to go straight for the jugular now and we're just going to take you out. Like, you know, and that's because they've been brought up. Well, you've laid down your weapon and she's picked it up and chopped bread <laughs> off with it. <laughs> yeah, because, and then you look at the environment and you go, okay, yeah, I get that. Um, yeah, it's quite a stoic environment where, you know, you don't show any signs of weakness. And that sign of weakness now is, is seen as almost like the Black Widow relationship, you know. Is, but then there's also other environments that are quite, that have been brought up in quite a great deal of empathy and quite a deal of understanding where you go that. And then despite, I think that genders things to one side, I think it's also the environment that they've been brought up in also has a big saying in that as well, right? Yeah, my wife and I, we've been together since 15. So we celebrated 20 years last year. And it took us until probably a good three years ago for us to actually sit down and have a conversation around what did we learn about love growing up? Because, you know, we went through some struggles and some challenges, you know, life happens, both running businesses, two children, we certainly weren't 
pouring into our relationship. So we got to a point where the world said, bang your heads together, sort this stuff out. <laughs> and we weren't being who we needed to be for each other. And that was one of the things that we started to do. And we just thought, wow, like I grew up single parent family. My mum worked three, four jobs. She was the epitome of positivity, optimism, never asked for help. So love to me looked like, you know, being independent and being happy and positive. My wife, on the other hand, she grew up effectively single child. Dad did everything for her. So to her, love looks and felt like people do stuff for you, which is like the opposite, right? When we sort of sat back and looked at that for the first time, we were like, huh. So when you ask me for help and I'm trying to encourage you to do it yourself, I feel like I'm being loving to you, whereas you feel that that is a very act of being unloving. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) And that's it. And I think like what you said, whether it be empathy, whether it be about put this stuff in the middle and detach it from me, the human being. I have this profiling tool called Life Languages. It's like, you know, your Myers-Briggs type stuff, but it's about communication and needs in relationships. And it's really, really good because what it helps me do is understand the needs that a particular language has. And that helps me detach that either from myself, my wife, my team. And it helps me see the needs of that language. And if those needs aren't met, they go into a predictable state of distress that looks and sounds predictable. And the great thing about having that profile is like, well, if the profile can predict that, then maybe it's not me. Maybe I can then start to separate that from the character who actually, when I'm around them, when they're showing that behavior, I don't enjoy that. You know, they're an asshole when they're behaving like that versus I can now start to see that stress as an opportunity to help rather than be offended that that stress is coming in my direction. Yeah, yeah. So this leads me on to another question, which is quite often you'll come up against a scenario, whether it be professionally or personally, where perhaps you are the person who's done a lot of introspective looking and you've got a good deal of self-awareness. We're never going to be perfect with it. And there's someone who you really think could do with that dose of of self-awareness, but no matter how hard you try, you just can't help them find it. They're, They're just either A, not interested, B, they're just searching around, rooting around, and God knows, you know, I did it for years myself. How can you help? I mean, let's look at it from a professional position then. So like, you know, you're in a in a kitchen, you're in front of a house, you're in an ops role, and you've got a member of the team who perhaps is negative or perhaps, you know, has once upon a time been a really fantastic player and isn't anymore. And there's, you know, it's having an impact. What can you do in order to help them either A, come to that understanding and realization or B, work with them you know, if A, they're unwilling or B, they just don't, just haven't got there yet. There's a hierarchy of things, isn't it? And the very end of that spectrum is if if it's not something you're able to tolerate, well, then there's, if you can't change the people, change the people. Like that's the very last thing. What we want to do is kind of connection, empathy and leadership to be able to, and that's the servant's heart. And how do I know what my people need? It's not a guessing game. I have to spend time with people. And this is the thing with busy work, busy life is that, you know, particularly in the policing environment, it almost got to a point where all that connecting as a human being was almost nice to do. Whereas for me, it was necessary. It was a big part of what I would do. You know, I I would, it sounds silly, but I would bring in like juggling balls or just like these hand gadget games or like noughts and crosses. Why? Because I found that in moments of downtime, I really got to know people. I'd ask stupid questions like, oh, you know, 
if you were a biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be? And I'm not suggesting people go and do that. But the heart of all those types of things was, how do I get into their world? How do I understand what they're going through? How do I understand what they're dealing with? How do I understand their hopes, their dreams, their fears? And it's not to say that you become their therapist. It's just to say that you really get to understand from their perspective the world that they're operating in. Maybe there's something going on in home life. Maybe a relative's unwell. Maybe they're at a point where they're doubting that this is the career they want to do. Maybe they're really unhappy with the way that you lead. I, I, who knows? But the only way to find out is to get curious, to ask the questions, to seek to understand. And hopefully you've got a connection and relationship there where those answers will be forthcoming. And if there is some feedback that you are wanting to impart, always seek permission. You know, with love, obviously, I think it's, I, I practice something called love tough, is that in loving you, in wanting the best for you, I've earned the right to challenge you. And I think so many people get that round the wrong way, that they think it's tough love and then they do the tough challenging stuff, but it doesn't feel like love. <laughs> so if you can create that connection with people where they know and they trust that if you're going to say something, it's for their genuine betterment, not so that you can get more out of them but so that you can genuinely help them grow and improve. And hopefully that'll be more receptive. But I guess the other thing is, if it was a personal setting, I once heard that if you are awake, don't go around waking other people up, go and spend time with people who already are awake. And I guess what that, what that kind of means is that you will more likely to influence someone through who you are being rather than who you try and get them to be. So my wife found faith during our struggles and in becoming evangelical about that faith, she tried to get me to read the Bible. Couldn't have been the worst thing ever. Uh, not a chance. Like, like that repelled me. Like, there's no way I'm going to do that. But then I start seeing other people in my network, you know, good friends of mine who I didn't realize were Christians, quite talking about it. So then I get curious and then I start doing reading of my own accord because I've made the choice and decision. And I think that's where people really struggle because they know that this is the one thing that you need and it's going to benefit you. If only you would see. But ultimately, what it comes down to, and this is what John Gray said to me, he says that men don't resist being changed. They resist being unloved. And if you're trying to change me, that makes me feel like you don't love me for who I am. And many, many people might go, yes, but I can see who you could become. And it's so frustrating because I know. But ultimately, love them for who they are. And then that makes possible for them to go and want to improve themselves without resisting. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? Right. Which then obviously then comes to that point. If you've done everything, you know, with that heart of trying to connect, heart of trying to understand, heart of working through and journeying. And if then, okay, well, you genuinely get to the point where this just isn't working. Well, you know, that maybe those people need to go be a rock star somebody else, somewhere else. Yeah. And I think that that's quite true of where we're seeing hospitality at this moment in time, which is that you've got a great deal of caring individuals, you know, in whether it's in leadership positions or peer positions, all, you know, perhaps with a great deal of better awareness when it comes down to things like mental health and mental illness conditions, and all wanting to go out into the world and, and create either a problem solving you know, solutions to these issues, which you know, in reality you're never, never going to be able to do in, in a single conversation or very, very rarely. But also then it's, it's blurring those boundaries at the moment, which is almost getting locked on to, I can change this, I can fix this. And then that starts to then eat into that, that bit that we were talking about at the beginning, which is that own, 
your own bucket of goodness, you know, when, especially when it's out of hours or it's out of work time. And we're seeing the lines between work and personal life now start to to blur because people are now they've got locked onto i know that i can do this i know that i can help this person when in fact that person's going i'm okay i either a not aware that i need help or b i don't really want it and you can't change that well you can't dine out on goodwill forever you know and and that is so much what good people will do they because they are professional because for the love of the team for whatever reason because they you know the comradeship that they'll have within the the kitchen or or whatever that might be they show up they pull the double shift because they rather you know someone else maybe didn't have to and there's only so long that that can continue and this idea that don't be surprised if you see stuff disappear if you don't appreciate it and so often people think Oh well, they're just being paid for that. You know, I don't need to appreciate they're being, that's what they're being paid for. They should be they should be lucky that they've got a job. You know, this is something that senior managers would say at the police. If they're unhappy, then they can go flip burgers. You know, quite disparagingly, and it complete lacks tact and empathy. And I was on a particular project within the police. I went back into the control room, and it was my responsibility to try and help improve the culture of the organ of that particular environment. And I sat there, and a nine 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 call came in. The dispatcher did an incredible job. The caller took a, did an incredible job of getting all the information, communicated it incredibly well to the dispatcher. The dispatcher spoke amazingly over the radio to the officer and they got people to the scene very, very quickly and they did what they needed to do. And I just messaged them all and I said, I just sat and watched that. That was incredible. Thank you for doing such great work. And they were like, they looked at me and said, I had three heads. Like, dude, we're just doing our job. I'm like, that's the point. That is the exact point. You are doing your job to the best of your ability. You're doing it very well. And I want you to know that because I want you to keep doing that. And, you know, if we don't appreciate the basics, if someone is coming to work every single day, like, and they are doing exactly what you want them to do, they're perf- don't ever let that go for- to waste. Tell people. Be that. Like, I watch Ted Lasso. Like, and I don't know if you've ever seen Ted Lasso, but like he's this obnoxiously positive, great kind of, I would say, is the epitome of being a heart-centered leader. Just be that type of person for people. Because honestly, a bit of encouragement, a bit of acknowledgement, a bit of appreciation goes a long, long way. Yeah, that's true, not just internally, but also externally and Something's just popped into my head, which is during our training sessions when we talk about crisis intervention, when people are, you know, in actively looking to take their own life through suicide. And often enough, I say, right, what do we do if someone is in immediate danger, a matter of life or death? And everyone goes, we phone the ambulance. I said, actually, no, you would phone someone else. They're like, we'd phone the police. I was like, yes, great. Why would you phone the police? And they were like, because we can, they will restrain them. And they'll put them in cuffs and they'll use mace and stuff like this to be able to subdue them. And I say, no, no. Like, again, there's this, you're not praising or rewarding the police service for doing great things. They're actually very well trained in de-escalation. They're very, very empathic when it comes to these situations as well. And they don't use force and they don't use truncheons or pepper spray. You know, these are things that from an internal perspective of your role, but also the external, we have a duty to be able to go, do you know what, police? Yes, you're not, perhaps you, you have made some, some errors that are way, way, way publicized, but also let's, let's try and say, well done. And 
let's look at the positive situations where perhaps the police have intervened in this and gone, that is the epitome of good work, you know. Yeah, it comes back to the fundamentals of their core purpose, which is to protect life and property. You know, protect. This is the heart set. I talk about heart set, nor rather the mindset, but this is the heart set with which they operate in, which is whenever they are anywhere, there's always a desire to protect people and property. And I'm sorry if you can hear my dogs, but <laughs> I have two small dogs and they're yapping right now. I don't know if you can hear them. I vaguely heard something. I wasn't sure if it was outside mine or yours, so it's fine. What dogs have you got? <laughs> oh, I've got a Jack Russell and a Chihuahua. So, you know, those really manly dogs. You know, those... <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, let's not stereotype. They look good in handbags. They do look very good in hand. And, and they'll say, actually, it's quite nice. So I had a, a pug cross with a Border Terrier, right? He looked like... For those who, who haven't seen Star Wars, just Google Ewok. And he was the spitting <laughs> image of an Ewok. And sometimes the nicest parts of my day when I was coming into the office was he would sit on my lap. And he would sit on my lap during a podcast. Or he would sit on my lap whilst I was working. And it was just nice to have something that was cuddled. But you can guarantee if someone walked in, they were like, oh, my God, what are you doing with that dog? <laughs> stop, hug, <laughs> stop hugging it like you would hug your teddy when you were three years old. But do you know what? Yeah. Again, stereotypes, right? Yeah, yeah. They're very intuitive creatures, though, dogs. So I interviewed someone from an organization called the Heart Math Institute. And they said that because there's a lot of research that they do around the power of the heart and the frequencies that it sends out. And it says that there was this experiment where this 12-year-old boy was to look at the dog and project feelings of love towards the dog. And within half an hour, the heartbeat of the dog and the child started to align synchronize in, yeah. in some way yeah they're synchronizing you know just think wow like the power of the heart and, and i think that's the way that the animal kingdom operate they they don't have this thing what it mean they're not burdened by this degree of consciousness they're always present they're always in the moment and i think that gives them access to feeding off of this energy which we are doing all of the time as human beings you know someone walks in the kitchen you know that they're stressed you can you can see from their before they've even spoken the degree of stress and tension and anger or frustration or worry that they're carrying. And that's a very primitive kind of energy reading that we've got. And and ultimately, when I talk about heart set, the best thing we can do for our mind is to connect with our heart. There's an app called Headspace, right? And the punchline is that Headspace is created through heart connection. So when when we create heart connection, which is that in this moment, I am okay, I am well, I have all that I need, my heart then sends a message to my brain because 80% of all of the connections between the heart and brain, 80% go from the heart to the brain. So if the heart's good, it tells the mind we're good. And then it tells the body we're good. And that's it. So if we want to create some headspace, we've got to create some heart connection, which is in this moment, I have all that I need. I am well. Got a really, really deep question for you. When was the first time... And I'm asking you probably to think back to your childhood now. When was the first time that you remember being self-aware? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think, so I, my dad left when I was six months old. And then I had a stepdad. And then my mum and stepdad separated when I was 12. And there was an occasion where stepdad was coming to pick up myself my brother and my sister 
and for whatever reason, the car pulls up out the front, for whatever reason, I'd forgotten something. So I ran upstairs to go get it, came back down, and he had gone. And it was his children, effectively. I was stepchild. And that, for me, I don't think I had the self-awareness of it then. But as I've grown and journeyed with my own shadow as an adult, that moment in my life has become one of real significance. Because for me, that was a story that played in my life for a very, very long time that people leave, that Ryan Hartley isn't loved and he gets abandoned. And that story, even though I didn't realize that it got planted then, informed a lot of my behavior. When I said earlier about for all the love you don't get, you seek it in the world, I was that kid. I was someone that was called arrogant. And I always rejected this label of being arrogant because I never felt arrogant in my heart. And it's not until I became an adult, I say adult, 28, 30, kind of, where I was able to understand that experience and what it shaped in me, which was, yeah, was that belief. And and that arrogance wasn't me genuinely believing I was better than anybody. It was me using my achievements to say, hey, someone say that they're proud of me. Someone acknowledge me for what I'm doing. Someone recognize me. And that's why I always rejected the arrogance, but I can see how it came across. And again, you know, that was those two kind of six months old and at 12, I guess those two moments have shaped me both for the better and for the worse. And I genuinely believe that I wouldn't be who I am without those moments. My kids wouldn't get the dad that they've got without those moments. I wouldn't be the leader I am without those moments. And I guess I've taken that. And I think there's some scripture that says thorns in our flesh, right? Paul, please to God, three times, please remove these thorns from my flesh. And God's response to him is simple, is that in your weakness, you will find my full expression. And what that kind of really means to me on a practical level, whether you have faith or not, is that there is always purpose in our pain. Whatever pain we've experienced, the depth of that pain always has a upside the most compassionate people in the world are often able to meet others at the depth of their pain why because they've been there themselves so sometimes i encourage people to look at that pain and understand what has it given you because so often it's very easy to say what has it taken from me but it's two sides of the same coin right there's always something that it's given and i think that is really, really powerful. And I think it can give people a huge degree of purpose in whatever they're doing once they realize how, like I've been able to do, to take that pain and realize actually what it's carved in me, what it's crafted. And I genuinely believe that if I live a life that I love, I can't hate what got me here. And that was a huge part of my integration and healing in my final journey is because I had resentment. I had anger. I had questions that were unanswered. But I don't need any of that anymore. Why? Because I genuinely love the life I live. I love who I am as a person. I love what I get to do in my work. I love the dad that I am to my kids. I have grace for the flawed human being that I am. And I, the last phase of that healing was to not hate what got me here. Thank you. So what's next for you on your journey? Because you're doing some tremendous work. You've interviewed and met with some fantastic people through the podcast. And these are the public things that we see. And you do a lot, a lot of great work in terms of helping people one-on-one and and with groups. Where are you going? Where do you see yourself in sort of five years time? Thank you, mate. That's very kind of you to say. And I, I think I started this journey with a vision of changing the world, right? I think anybody that gets evangelical about what they do is like change the world. And 
for me, I've kind of gone the opposite way. I've kind of come back a step. And it's not to say that those things aren't possible. I'm just not fighting to make them happen. For me, I'm making life more simple and I'm going back to what are the opportunities that present themselves on the day-to-day. I spent a lot of my life trying to bang on doors that never opened and it wasted a lot of energy. So I'm trying to walk that paradox of working my face off but allowing whatever is meant to be and I still I still don't know what side of that line I'm falling. But for me, at this moment in time, I'm showing up every single day, making space for good people, trying to help as many people as I can. But it's always done in, in moments. In this one moment, we're having a conversation. Later today, I'll be having a coaching conversation. And maybe next week, I'll be talking to someone who wants more of that type of stuff. So it's a very, very passive way of saying I'm enjoying the journey and whatever presents itself to me will, will make sense. And I guess as Paolo Coelho says in The Alchemist, he says that the heart knows the way and enthusiasm is the path. Mm-hmm. It's that intrinsic motivation, right? It's that knowing that day by day you're making a difference and it doesn't have to lead to extrinsic value doesn't have to lead to things that look nice and shiny or the bigger house and these are all nice to house but they don't define us as human beings and well the world leads to our lack everything that we see from the minute we wake up is about hey you're inadequate unless you have this stuff you're not accepted and there's this so i've interviewed a guy called dr gordon i mean i don't mean to keep name dropping but it's more about their opinion than mine dr gordon newfeld says that If we don't equip our kids with a sense of values, then they'll go out into the world and places like YouTube and TikTok will teach them who they are and what their values are. And I think that's so true of adults and of life is that so much, and this is the other thing Gordon says, is that societal values will become the cost of our children's acceptance. If they don't have clear sense of who they are, well, the world will dictate it. And I think that's kind of true of, of all of us, is that if we don't start to live from the inside out, heart set, if we don't come to the world as an expression of who we are and what's important to us, we'll be living life by someone else's rules. That we will always be vulnerable to whatever trend is trying to sell us something. Because we'll feel that we need to do more and have more in order to be more. They're almost like flipping this spiritual truth, which is always been come to the world being who you were meant to be, do what you were born to do, and you will have whatever is meant for you. And I think we always have to start to trust that it's not necessarily that the material things are inherently bad. It's the attachment we place on those things. Have those things if they are a byproduct of doing great work in the world. That's just like a ripple effect of the goodness that we've put out. Those things aren't to be inherently avoided. But we definitely have to take that time to come to the world from the inside out that's for sure yeah and i think that it's a sentiment i'd completely agree with i think being realistic and one thing that i was you know but it sounds like both you and i are are quite lucky in respect that something happened that allowed us to be able to start to get a handle on what that call was but in reality you know for years and i suspect it's the same for true for both of us we were sort of bumbling around in this like what the fuck who am i where am i how do i even get this handle on this core thing because i'm so busy being who i think i should be not who i actually am so as our final point for the day what can people do in order to try and start those wheels turning to try and get that handle is it something they can do solo do they need help 
Well, there's a wonderful Instagram account by a guy called Yanis Ozolins. And I really love the simplicity of some of these Instagram accounts that are just images, like real simplistic images that represent, you know, some kind of psychological concept or idea. And one of the things that he put out recently was that you get this jagged line, right? You get this jagged line and like that's what it's like to go alone. You have highs, you low lows, and then there's a line just below it that's going up slightly more stable. There's a few kind of dips and things along the line, but those stable points were characterized by having three things. He said, have a community, have a mentor, and have a coach. And I'm not being prescriptive about having those things, but there's definitely value in being around people who are doing similar things to the type of person that you want to become. That cliche phrase, if you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with, well, go and surround yourself with people who are the type of people that you want to be. And when you have moments of falling down saying, ah, I'm no good at this. This isn't for me. I'm rubbish. Those people are the ones that will remind you who you truly are. They'll say, nope, nope, come on, let's get back to it. In your current circle, if you're the only one doing great things, chances are they'll pull you back a bit. Oh, you don't want to do that. That's a bit scary. Come on, you don't want to be doing that. That's the difference. It's not to say that those people are bad. They probably love for you for who you are, not who you could become. They don't want you to grow because if they're not growing, what does that mean for them? So get yourself around good people who are doing good things. Mentor, well, I think that goes for being a mentor and a mentee. So get someone that you can learn from, but also get someone that's coming behind you that you can share some kind of experience as to what helped you get as far as you've got. I think that also helps us realize that we are useful and valuable people. It's good to be helped and it's good to help. And then lastly, get a coach, you know, someone like myself, who can give you that time and space to help you go on that introspective journey of exploring who you are. The concepts I start with and work with is is heart set. So whenever I work with anybody, the very first session is one of what are my values? What do I really care about? What do I care about? What's important? And lastly, my strengths. So many people are very, very equipped with an understanding of their weaknesses, their flaws, their insecurities. And sometimes I'm just putting the odds more in their favor of just saying, okay, well, let's get clear on the other side of that stuff. And that compounds. When you start to live from that inside out, that kind of compounds. And then it feeds into your work. And then you might be lucky enough to find that you can express that within the work that you do. I call that heart work. It's the things that we do to the things that we're passionate about, the things that we love in the service of other people. And when we do that, when we lead from the heart set, when we serve with our heart work, we will leave a heart print, which is when those around us are left better than when they are yesterday. Awesome. Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. So if people wanted to find you, find your podcast, find access to the services, where can people look, Ryan? My website, abty.co.uk. abty.co.uk has got coaching, consulting. I haven't talked about the consulting arm of the business. That's all around leadership development, team development. Something that I think, you know, the industry that many of your listeners probably would benefit from rather than just doing drinks at the end of a night shift have some purposeful and intentional away from the day job get to know the people because not many organizations take the time to really do that and yeah you'll find the links to our community and our podcast there too so but but, mate thank you so much for having me i've really really enjoyed our conversation i look forward to having you back on the podcast in a couple of weeks time yeah be good you know hit me with the questions but um not too challenging (laughs) (laughs) i get my own back (laughs) i appreciate it ryan thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode thank you
Thank you, brother. Cheers, man.